The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. And this week, we're celebrating the Oxford English Dictionary. Some of you may be familiar with that long, luscious row of blue volumes. Some of you may have it. Some of you may subscribe to it online, which is the way one properly possesses its richnesses today. And and, and you should. This isn't like the Encyclopedia Britannica, for example. I bought a big clunking set of those things as soon as I had a real middle-class income. I puffed on my metaphorical pipe and put on my metaphorical slippers, and I thought, these volumes are part of a proper home. And, you know, the internet took over existence like a second later, and I dragged those damn brown behemoths around for eons. And, you know, frankly, sorry, Britannica folks, no offense, but even online, let's face it, history has run you through. There's a little something called Wikipedia, it's better than ever, and well, just the internet. But the OED, Oxford English Dictionary, still has what you can only get there. In fact, you know, a lot of the questions that you all ask me have answers in the OED. And I haven't made an announcement that you all could just look there because I kind of like having an excuse to get out the old books, which I actually have never had. I, I look online, but still, you get the point. Anyway, this year is the 90th anniversary of the OED. And the people there asked me to do a show about it. And, you know, even though 90 could be argued to lack a certain drama, my step-grandmother actually just turned 100 and she's sharp as a tack. That is drama. But still, for one thing, the OED is God, and so I must pitch in. And, of course, it has nothing to do with it, that if we're talking about the first edition coming out in 1928, then that means that I get to play clips from the 20s. That has nothing whatsoever to do with this at all. But I just thought I'd give you some words that trace back to the 1920s and not just the flapper, slang, hooch, whatever. You can find all that, you know, on a million websites. We're talking about just word words, whatever words. You know, what started 90 years ago or so? Well, words such as, since we're going to go in alphabetical order, this actually is in the OED, abominable snowman of all words. That starts in 1921. And it's one of those things. Why abominable? Well, first of all, let's listen to, of course, this is a cue for a Looney Tune, this wonderful sequence. Oh, what a cute little pink bunny rabbit. Just what I always wanted, my own little bunny rabbit. I will name him George, and I will hug him and pet him and squeeze him. I'm not a bunny rabbit. And pat him and pet him and... You are hurting me. Put me down, please. And rub him and caress him and... I ain't no bunny rabbit! Not a bunny rabbit, George? Then how come you have long ears? How come? Long ears? That cartoon is called The Abominable Snow Rabbit. And, you know, I am now at the time when I am reading the Harry Potter books. And I decided that I am not up to coming up with 35 different British voices. And so everybody is American except Hermione has a British accent. That's the way I do it. And I used that Abominable Snowman voice for Hagrid. Hagrid talks like this. That's the Hagrid voice. So why abominable? 
I'm an odd word. If you think about it, it's an abominable stomach. Abominable. That sounds like some walrus like man in a men's club. (laughs) Well, that's abominable. Why is the snowman abominable? Turns out that's a mistranslation. It's from the Tibetan because that's where the Yeti seems to have been spotted the most or first. And what they were calling it was not an abominable snowman. Why would they call it that? That snowman that's slightly socially inappropriate or sociopathic. They meant that he was raggedy. The Tibetan for abominable snowman is roughly raggedy snowman, which makes more sense if you see pictures of the Yeti. It's interesting. We were always obsessed with these crypto creatures when really our own creatures are so much more interesting. You know, there are calamari that are 50 feet long. Can you imagine? I mean, apparently they don't taste good, but imagine what a terrible thing that is. Sea cucumbers, if you scare them, they splurp out all their guts all over you. Now that's interesting. Have you ever actually seen an aardvark? There's one at the Bronx Zoo. It's one of the cutest animals I've ever seen. But no, everybody wants to pretend that there's a plesiosaurus living in a lake in Scotland or something like that. Oh, well, next in the OED, well, not next, but the next thing that catches our eye is baloney. And think about how baloney is spelled. We're not talking about that kind of vaguely low rent lunch meat. But when somebody says baloney, that exclamation baloney, that is 1928, B-A-L-O-N-E-Y. Somewhere along the line, you learn that it's spelled Bologna, but you say Bologna, and we just accept that. I once knew a woman way, way back, and her name was Deneen, and she spelled it D-E-N-N-E. You had to just kind of get used to it. Bologna, it's one of those things. Bologna, we've talked about this sort of thing. It's kind of predictable that in English we wouldn't want to say Bologna because it doesn't really fit what we think of as our normal sound patterns. It's not in our comfort zone. We'd rather say something like baloney. That's kind of Englishifying it. And so just like we talked about on a show way, way back, Hawaii used to be pronounced by many people Hawaii. Well, baloney, because it kind of reminds us of words like phony and alimony. And so baloney, it just feels better to us. And the same opera. Opera doesn't feel like an English word. You just knew that somebody was going to start pronouncing it Opry as in the grand old Opry. Or you think about Predictions, as I always say, linguistics is about patterns, not just collecting the butterflies. God bless the butterflies, but one looks for system. So if people say Opry instead of opera, you could imagine that for okra, that underrated vegetable, that there would be people who say okri. And, you know, I'll be hornswoggled if there aren't such people, as I learned just last week from Toy Andrews. Thank you. Apparently, many Southerners say okri rather than okra. So, baloney. Opry, okri, that's our language. Of course, baloney is a little, little antique. I mean, you can say it, but I don't say, well, frankly, if you ask me, that's a whole lot of baloney, or I would only say it in irony. But there are other words like that in the 20s as well. And so if you wanted to sort of call bullshit on something, one thing you hear people saying it in old movies is nerds. And what they're supposed to be saying is nuts, but instead they say, well, nerds. That starts in 1925. First attestation, of course, is 1925. If my favorite old movie isn't Citizen Kane, then it's Dinner at Eight. This is 1933. Here's Gene Harlow making a wonderful speech to Wallace Beery. Remember what I told you last week? I don't remember what you told me a minute ago. About Washington? Don't you remember that? How would you like to be a cabinet member's wife? 
mingled with all the other cabinet members' wives and ambassadors. Nerds. You're not going to drag me down to that graveyard. I've seen their pictures in the papers, those girlies. A lot of sour-faced frumps with last year's clothes on, pinning medals on girl scouts and pouring tea for the DARs and rolling Easter eggs on the White House lawn. A swell lot of fun I'd have. You go live in Washington. I can have a good time right here. Listen, stupid. If I get that appointment to Washington, I'm going. And if I go, you go. That's that. You mean you're really going to get it? Certainly I am. I won't go. You will go. Oh, no, I won't. You can't boss me. I can yell just as Carrie, hard as you, you can. You've been acting very strangely lately, my fine lady, and I'm not going to stand for it. Yeah, and so what? So what? I'm the works around here, and I'll give you orders what to do. Who do you think you're talking to? That first wife of yours out in Montana? Now you leave her that out of this. That poor mealy-faced thing with a flat chest that didn't have nerve enough to talk up Shut to up. You? Washing out your greasy overalls and cooking and slaving in some lousy mining shack? Now when does she die? Say, I'll suck well, you, you in a minute. you can't get me that way. You're not going to step on my face to get where you want to go, you big windbag. Perfect early talkie. Let's go a little further in this virtual book here. You know what else is actually in the OED? Boogie woogie. Yes, we're talking about words, all words, not just words like advertise and arrogate, but words and boogie woogie. There you go. That is a word or a words, and it refers to a certain music. For those of you who don't know, if there are any who don't know, this is prototypical boogie woogie right here. This is Albert Ammons. It's like ham and cheese. My father could play that way. It was wonderful to hear it rattling through the house. Actually, although it's associated with the late 30s and the early 40s, Boogie Woogie is first attested as a word in 1928. And it's one of those things, one of these echo words. Apparently, a boogie at a certain point was a party. Interesting. Growing up in Philadelphia in the 70s, I remember boogie was what we said for booger. I've gradually learned that you refer to booger if you must, but we called them boogies. But apparently 50, 60, 70 years before, a boogie was a party and a party is often better if people dance at it. And so boogie, woogie, kind of like Rob and Bob or Tumi, Kimi, for those of us who are Tommels, etc. So it was one of those. And, you know, actually, boogie, woogie, it's 1978. My father had this special place it was this cabinet, the lower part of the cabinet in the living room. And every now and then when I was by myself, I would go into that place and you never knew what you were going to find. Once I went there and I found this stack of these thick, strange, scratchy old records. This was my introduction to the 78. And I took the one on top and I put it on the turntable and set it to 78. And this is what I heard. I'll never forget. The plains down your Santa Fe. I met a cowboy right in the range one day, and as he jogged along, I heard him singing a most peculiar cowboy song. It was a ditty he learned in the city. Come a tie, come a tie, yip, get 
So Boogie Woogie always reminds me of that. That's Cow Cow Boogie. That was Ella Mae Morse. She was not black. And that takes me right back to my childhood. You know, in 1975, I went into that cabinet and I found something called a calculator. It was amazing. You could add and divide without using paper. In 1982, I went into that cabinet and I found a fascinating stack of pornographic videos. But the time when I found Cow Cow Boogie, that was the most magic time. How about Chow? Where's Chow come from? What is that? Well, you know, according to the OED, that is first attested in 1929. And, you know, Chow is one of those things where the etymology of it is actually interesting because so often etymologies aren't really, which is why I don't do them that much on this show. Like house. Well, where's the word house come from? It comes from a much older word that meant house. And if you trace it further back, it might come from a word that meant to cover because presumably a house covers you, but it probably didn't. And that's the story of house. You can't make anything out of that. But chow is just delightful. For one thing, it's first attested in Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. Boy, that one does not exactly hold up. I actually only read it last year. But one interesting thing about it is that somebody does say chow. It's spelled funny. It's like chow, but that is the first chow. And you know where it came from? This is cool. It comes from the Latin word for slave, sclavus, because a way of greeting was to say to somebody, I'm your slave. <laughs> Very friendly. It was common in the Balkan area, for example. So you just say, I'm your slave, Sclavus. But then these fun sound changes happen. And next thing you know, you have a whole different word. So Sclavus, it starts with a sk. So one of those consonants has got to go. And it was the l. So you've got Sclavus. Okay. Well, you've got ka. Now, remember, not long ago, we talked about tree becoming tree to ch. That palatalization happens all the time. And if you've got ka, one thing that might happen is that the k becomes a ch. Just like you have carus means deer in Latin. That becomes cher in French. So that k becomes a ch. So you have stravus. Now, avus, the V's just going to drop out because things like that happen. And so you have schaus. Now, something that's hanging at the end, it's kind of like a boogie. It's going to drop off. And so schau, okay. Then you have that S at the front. You want that to go away. And, you know, pretty soon it will. Next thing you know, schau becomes schau. That happened in Venetian Italian. And so sclavus became chow. So people today don't think of themselves as saying, I am your eternal and unjustified servant. But it really originally meant I'm your slave. And now you just say chow. Isn't that just cool? And, you know, I'm thinking it must be Ethel Merman's birthday somewhere on the globe. And so let's listen to her singing this in 1936. If you want to. Start playing. 
The show was called Red, Hot and Blue. Yes, Ashley Friedman, if you're listening, you did sing it better. But I had to use Ethel for, well, I did. I'll maybe do the colors sometime, red and blue. But really, I'm interested right now in hot. Hot was first used to refer to music in print in 1924. Hot itself, as in ouch, don't touch it, that goes way back in a way that frankly isn't very interesting. But hot in terms of music, that's 1924. And one of the most prominent ways actually was a series of recordings that Louis Armstrong did, which were called the Hot Fives and Hot Sevens, based on how many people were playing in the bands. And actually, it reminds me of something that isn't technically one of those. It's actually kind of a ripoff of those with a lot of the same people, including him. This isn't technically a Hot Five, but it might as well be, and it's one of my favorites. It's called Georgia Bobo. Listen to Hot Singing by Louis Armstrong in 1926. Bobo. You can just tell that it's a euphemism for what, you know, in the 1920s was called. You can hear people saying it in the early talkies. Mike, please give me that kind of grainy, crackly effect. S-E-X. That's what the Bobo is. In any case, you know what else is in the O-E-D? Oops. Yeah, that's a word. First time oops is in print. It's not, say, the 1700s. There's no, you know, Martha Washington writing oops or something. 1921 is when you get oops. And there's a funny initial sentence. It was, oops, my dear. It's in the last where the dirty work takes place. I don't know what that means. Here it is again. Oops, my dear. It's in the last where the dirty work takes place. The last what? What's the dirty work? But apparently that was the first oops. Now, where does oops come from? Well, to tell you the truth, you can punch somebody in the stomach and oops will just kind of come out. But there's some interesting guesses that there's probably a relationship with upsidaisy. So oops is upsidaisy shortened. Upsidaisy goes back to 1862 and get the first attestation of upsidaisy. It goes. A common ejaculation when a child in play is assisted in a spring leap from the ground. And there might be a relationship to whoopee, to the word whoopee. And that word starts as referring to a party. So we're talking about times when when you went to a party, you either went to a boogie or you went to a whoopee. Don't you kind of want to be there except for the cigarette smoking and the lack of penicillin and the racism and the sexism. But as sex, whoopee also referred to the act. The first attestation of that might be 1928 with the wonderful song Make and Whoopee. And if you're waiting for me to play Eddie Cantor singing it, then it means you heard him before. So let's keep these songs alive and play a more modern version of Make and Whoopee. This is Miss Pfeiffer in a movie that I remember thinking of as special, The Fabulous Baker Boys, but I'll bet it wasn't. But here is Michelle Pfeiffer singing Make and Whoopee up on top of the piano. Another breath. Another tune 
another Sunday Honeymoon Another season Another reason For making whoopee This to sound like somebody assisting you in a spring leap from the ground, as it were. Anyway, one thing that might assist you in springing of that kind is something else. Reefer, or as the OED calls it, a cannabis cigarette. That's a character actor named Richard Hayden, for those of you who are wondering. A cannabis cigarette. That's Reefer. That traces, depending on who you you consult, that traces to 1920. Seven. That year, a black man was born in Philadelphia named John McWhorter, and it wasn't me. It was my dad. I just thought I should mention that. But there are two possible sources for reefer. One of them is fun. The other one is kind of stupid. And so I think we're going to confer authority on the one that's fun. The fun one is that it's from the Spanish for the same object, which was either grifo or grifa. And so, you know, some Anglo or gringo or something is listening to people talking about grifo and grifa, and what they hear is reefer. And next thing you know, they're saying, gee, that was a swell reefer. By the way, swell in that meaning is from 1897, so I can't use that or play something from Gold Diggers of 1933. Sorry. But you can imagine reefer maybe came from Spanish. Now, see, that's fun. Then there's this other possible derivation, which is that sales when they're rolled up like sails on a ship. Apparently, nautical terminology is that those rolled up sails can be called reefs. And so people are, you know, puffing on their joints and they're thinking, this looks like one of those rolled up reefs. Let's call it a reefer. Why would it be on shipboard? You're imagining something like, let's get high, baby. It's unlikely. Popeye didn't smoke pot. And so let's go with the Spanish one. Want to hear some of my real life? Here. What did you do after lunch? Robotics. What's robotics? Um, it's when you put like Legos together, like like a robot, and it connects, and it has a battery that connects into a computer, and it moves like a robot. What moves like a robot? The Lego. That's an activity. Yeah. That's my older one. That's an actual conversation, although, of course, it's staged. And notice that she can actually say all that sounding spontaneous. She has got she has got a gift. In any case, that is my oldest one talking about camp. God, I hated camp. You know, one of the things I love about being an adult is that nobody can make me go to fucking camp. I remember when I was in camp, one thing we did is we made little bracelets and other than that, I hated everything we did, and there isn't a day that goes by that I do not actively think to myself that I am thankful that one, I can see, two, I can hear, and three, nobody can make me go to camp. 
but she's enjoying it. And notice that we were talking about robots. Well, where does that word come from? Do you think that, you know, somebody like John Hancock was running around talking about robots because he wasn't? It actually has a very interesting derivation. It's 1922, and it's from a play called R.U.R., which made as much of a mark on Broadway then as roughly Warhorse has in recent years since. Big, interesting play. It was originally Czech, and then it played here. And R-U-R stood for Rossum's Universal Robots. Now, what was a robot? This was the first time the word had been used. Robot was from the Czech word for labor. And those of you who know Russian will recognize, for example, robotats, to work. It's that root. It comes from Czech via a word made up in a Czech language play. And of course, robotics comes a little later. And you know, in the Broadway production, which is quite irretrievable to us in any real way, you know who played one of the robots? Spencer Tracy. It was a young Spencer Tracy. You know how Spencer Tracy always seemed like 55? Well, he was young once. And one of the things he did when he was young was he played a robot in the wonderful R.U.R. Anyway, let's see. One more thing in the OED. Televise. Televise goes all the way back to the 1920s, believe it or not. And it's one of those things called a back formation. Television is first. And then people start saying televise. They made it up. And so, as I've often said, nouns are always becoming verbs in this crazy language of ours. And it was like supervision becomes supervised. Television becomes televised. You know, it's not very interesting. You're absolutely right. And the reason that I'm bringing up televised is because it's a useful transition. And here's the transition. Watch this. This is not in the OED, but it's within the ballpark. And it needs to be discussed. One of the first movies to be shown on television, see, this is the transition, was an ancient early talky musical with Fanny Bryce, the old-timey Yiddish comedian. And the movie was called Be Yourself. Now, what's interesting about Be Yourself, which survives and therefore, of course, is in my house, is that it doesn't seem to have anything to do with self-expression or being genuine. I mean, the plot is something like Fanny's in love with this boxer who keeps on taking dives. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with confidence or anything like that. And so it's just one of those things that kind of stuck in my mind always. And you don't want to think about things like that too often because they might not matter. But still, I always wonder, why is it called Be Yourself? Something's up with that. And I just left it there. Then there's a musical of 1924, utterly and justly forgotten. Actually, George S. Kaufman wrote it. It was called Be Yourself. It ran for about negative 10 minutes. But the subject of Be Yourself, it was about Appalachian people making moonshine. And so once again, why Be Yourself? And no, there was no song like a Dylan or What Comes Naturally or something like, well, when you're you know, drinking the moonshine, it brings you out of yourself. None of the songs were about that. And you know that I've checked. And so once again, Be Yourself, what, what, what's going on? I started to suspect that Be Yourself meant something different to people back in the 20s than it does for us. And finally, I found out that it did. There was a silent film comedian named Colleen Moore. 
she was to the 20s what Sandra Bullock and Anna Faris's child would be today. She was utterly charming. She holds up one of her、um, late silence that's kind of trying to be a talkie. There's a soundtrack was restored a few years ago. It's called Why Be Good. And one of the intertitles actually has somebody saying, "Ah, be yourself." Blah 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 blah. And what the "be yourself" means is come off it. It doesn't mean find what you actually are inside Freud, etc. And I thought, there it goes. That's what they mean by "be yourself." Be yourself basically just meant, "Ah, go on. Ah, come off it." It was just one of those colloquialisms. The reason that you put yourself through all of This ancient shit, like you know, these musicals and things, is because you never know what might pop up. Anybody close to me has heard me say that. And you know why? Be good. I recommend it. It's one of those silent films that holds up. You know, frankly, most of them. The problem is nobody talks. But with this one, it actually holds up. Kind of a post-Victorian plot where you know, Colleen Moore is not supposed to dance or pet. But you know, what's the bad Fitzgerald? That first one. This side of paradise is basically concerned with that same idea, same error, and everybody thinks that's so good. This film actually does it better. In any case, while we're on Fitzgerald, more about Be Yourself. Hemingway, Hemingway's short story, Fifty Grand. It's got fighters, and you find him using the expression in this way. Here we go. Jack climbed up and bent down to go through the ropes, and Walcott came over from his corner and pushed the rope down for Jack to go through. The crowd thought that was wonderful. This is my Hemingway voice. Walcott put his hand on Jack's shoulder, and they stood there just for a second. So you're going to be one of these popular champions, Jack says to him. Take your goddamn hand off my shoulder. Be yourself, Walcott says. This is all great for the crowd. So there's one of those usages of be yourself. Now I, I, he doesn't mean find your inner self or be natural. He's saying come off it in that way. Ah, go on. Very interesting. Anyway, you do want to hear Fanny Bryce singing a song in "Be Yourself," and so you're going to. This one is a joy. She's actually making breakfast while she sings this. Parrots. Parrots were invented in the twenties. I guess I don't know novelty or something like that. Anyway, there's a reason I'm bringing this up before we end. You know how it can be really funny to listen to the final line of a joke. Like it's actually funnier probably than the joke itself. Like somebody says, "So he ate it," <laughs> and you don't even want to know what the joke was. I remember way back. I heard somebody tell a joke that had all of us laughing so hard that on some other level and some other dimension we're still laughing now. And this was decades ago. And I only remember the very last line. And it was a parrot. It was something about a ship sinks and a parrot flies over and says, "Swim, motherfucker, swim!" Ah. 
that was the end of the joke. The little ack whistle. I'm just putting that in because that's how Mel Blanc used to do parrots. But what was the joke? Hive mind. Notice I said it that way because so many of you have noticed that I apparently said it that way before. Hive mind. Have you heard that joke about the parrot? It's been driving me crazy since the Reagan administration. What was the joke that ends with the parrot saying, swim, motherfucker, swim? If any of you remember, please let me know. And of course, so apropos is to go back to Fanny Price singing about breakfast. In any case, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. This show is edited, as always, by Mike Volo. Motherfucker seems like it would start in something like 1926, but actually it traces back to the 19th century. And I am, as always, John McWhorter. Ah! Jenny knows that he's grateful. He needs a big plate And faints right after breakfast. For the one I love. <laughs>